Now, as you can see on the screen, our Bible reading is uh, from uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22, verse 21 through 43. However, I will be preaching on four chapters of 2 Samuel. Uh, this is our last sermon in our 2 Samuel series. Uh, we start our uh, vision series uh, as, as of next week. Um, I was tempted to read four chapters in their entirety, but uh, the picnic lunch will go cold. <laughs> 2 Samuel... Chapter 22, beginning verse uh, uh, 21. And it, I should point out, it's in the middle of, of actually a psalm, a song of David uh, in the book. 2 Samuel 22 from verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal pure, purely, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise, they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And you will have noticed that it's slightly different if you've got an NIV 11, because I was reading from the ESV, and I'm sorry about that. Let me lead us in prayer, and we'll get stuck into the last part of 2 Samuel. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word. Uh, please uh, do so now in the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, may we take to heart what it is that you would have us learn from uh, this huge chunk of Scripture, uh, that we would uh, put it into practice and become more like Jesus on account of doing so. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many years ago, as a young Jewish kid, I had to attend shul, Sunday school in the synagogue. And like uh, most Sunday schools, we sang songs. And one of the uh, popular items uh, was a song that went, David, David, Melech, Yisrael, Chai, Chai, V'chayam, which I've attempted to transliterate in the top of your, um, 
uh, outlines there. Uh, you can almost work out at least some of what it means, right? David, Israel, it's obviously David, Israel. Melech is a king, so David, the king of Israel. If you're really clever, you might know that Chai, if, who's seen Fiddler on the Roof and knows what Lachayim means, right? To life, so Chai is life. David, king of Israel, lives and endures. That's what little Jewish Ben sings. David, king of Israel, lives and and endures, and so do Jewish kids all over the world. And it's fascinating when you think about it. It's been 3,000 years since the stuff we're looking at, right? 3,000 years since David. And uh, we still, as this uh, mark of somewhere between nationalistic and religious pride, celebrate the reign and the rule of King David. Uh, for those, uh, I'm sure many of you are aware, the, 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 the Israeli flag, which is also used as something to kind of uh, symbolise Judaism, has a star on it. Anyone know what that star's called? It's of all the things, it's called the Star of David. Now, as Christians, by the way, we could join in with that song. We could join in. David, king of Israel, lives and endures. And I'll tell you why. Centuries after David, God's people Israel, uh, uh, during the time of exile, uh, had God speak to them through the prophet Ezekiel in, in chapter 34. And he spoke of a future time when David would reign. Ezekiel 34, 23, I'll place over them, that is my redeemed people, one shepherd, my servant, David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, of course, you and I know that this is a, 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 a shorthand for the person and work of Jesus. But why choose David as the ultimate paradigm for which Jesus is actually going to be sort of explained to us why not why not Moses lives and endures or Abraham lives and endures why what is it about David in particular that God is happy to use him as the template as the shorthand for who Jesus is and that's going to matter to us because Jesus is our our king he's the one who lives and, and endures well today we're looking at would you believe the last four chapters of 2 Samuel if you've been here in previous weeks we've seen the rise and uh, uh, then the the attempted coup, the fall, and then the reinstatement, though the inadequate reinstatement of, of King David. We've been looking at his life for a long time now. And 2 Samuel's actually finished. We actually finished it last week. But there's an epilogue, an afterword, if you like. And this afterword is basically a big theological reflection. It's a big picture summary on the entirety of David's reign. So the film's over, but now we're just going to have this big kind of summary to see what it is that we, we've just heard. It's going to inform us what to make of all this stuff that we've been looking at. Um, in the grand scheme of things, what are we to take from all that we've seen of this king who was chosen in accordance with God's own heart? Now, the summary that spans four chapters fits what I'm going to call a, a literary device or a literary mould. And that's not really a nerdy thing because... Everyone here knows what literary devices are, even if you don't know that term. Uh, we've just sang a song. You know that there's a difference between a verse and a chorus, right? Uh, some people know what a haiku is. You know, the Japanese kind of poem, five syllables. Uh, haikus are really... No, haikus can be great, but sometimes they don't make sense. Refrigerator. That's, that's my favourite haiku. Um, and this one... This literary device that spans the whole four chapters uh, is called a chiasm. Now, chiasm just comes from the Greek word ex, chi, and it means instead of 
how we would normally write something, sort of starting generally and moving to the, the final point. This one kind of starts generally, moves to the point in the centre, and then kind of repeats the stuff that came in. So it's, it's a little bit like an X. Um, and chiasms do exist. And I'll tell you the coolest one that exists is the whole book of Lamentations in your Bible. So Lamentations comes after Jeremiah. If you don't know this, get this right, this is so cool. Lamentations, five chapters. Chapters 1 and 2, 22 verses each. Chapters 4 and 5, 22 verses. Chapter 3, 66 verses. And by the way, just to make it even more hardcore, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and each verse starts with the, the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, so you've got three, you've got A, B, C, D, you know, Aleph, Bed, Gimel, Dalet in the, the first two and the last two. But in the middle one, you've got A, 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 B, 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 C, you know, that, yeah, anyway. That's, chiasms exist. And this is one of them. Let me make it really easy, though, by making it visual. The first and sixth section of this big theological summary uh, have the, 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 the same basic point, and it's the low point. It's that for all his amazingness and for all the stuff that's happened, David just can't manage the holy wrath of God. It's still the answer to how sinful people can dwell with a holy God is still persistent in the reign of David. Then in the second and fifth section, we're going to call that the middle point, uh, David's followers became like him. The, the, the loyal followers of God's king keep becoming like him in, in a good way. And the high point, which of course is in the middle, and that's where I had the Bible reading from, it's a psalm, it's like a song of praise, is that God saves and gives strength to his anointed. God saves and, and gives strength to his Messiah. So what we're going to do today, next slide, is we're going to go through the three points of this great chiasm, this great theological reflection, starting with the high, moving to the medium. Yeah, it's kind of a downhill slope, this sermon. Sorry about that. <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts now, because, you know... It's a... Anyway, point one, God saves and gives strength to his anointed. In those middle two bits of the chiasm, these two psalms are recorded, and the theme of the first really big one is that God works his amazing power to save and to strengthen or to save and to vindicate his anointed. Uh, for example, here's some opening verses uh, in, in that middle section. It says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my saviour. From violent people you save me. I called the Lord, that's David, I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from all my enemies. Rescue, save, save, rescue. A little bit further down, verse 17, he's speaking still of God. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. He saves, he's a shield, he's a rescuer, he's a deliverer. An occupational hazard amongst kings, especially in David's day and age, was that people tended to want to kill you. We've seen that with David, haven't we? It started with Saul, I mean, with Goliath, like people, Absalom, they want to make war against him. It's difficult being a king, right? David's praise of God is kind of cool. Yes, he keeps saving me. That's the reason I'm still alive, right? God saved. But he also strengthened him. There's not only just salvation, there's vindication. So a little bit further on, same psalm, but now verse 25, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in, uh, cleanness in his sight. 
To the faithful, you show yourselves faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. And then again, a little bit further on, I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. See, not only does God save and rescue his anointed, he also strengthens him, gives him victory makes him successful, enables him to triumph over those who would bring him down. And we've seen that all through the life of David. If you've been here the last three or four weeks, you would have seen that with Absalom, right? Tries to overthrow him. Of course it's going to fail. God's going to strengthen David. He's going to rescue him from the hand of Absalom and then he's going to crush him, which is exactly what happened. And therefore it's not surprising to us here as the church for whom we know this is... a a great foreshadowing of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, that God also rescued or saved Jesus. God saved Jesus. I wonder if you can think about what I'm thinking about when I say that. Where in the Bible does God save Jesus? I'll give you a clue. He was really young. Oh, think about it for a second. Then I'm going to tell you, King Herod really doesn't like that Jesus is a threat to the throne. He wants to kill all the boys. So what does God do? He warns Joseph and Mary in a dream. Oi, get out of here. Go to Egypt. And then they're coming back and then he warns him in a dream to go. God saved his anointed, just like he saved David. But it turned out there was one very important exception to this rule. The one thing that meant Jesus for a moment did not, if he had a narrow mind, fit the criteria of being God's anointed. That, of course, is when God did not save him. Or, more accurately, when Jesus chose not to call upon God's rescue. The Jews who mocked Jesus on the cross in Mark chapter 15, 32, despite their callousness, actually had a point. Here's what it says. It says, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe if he's really the messiah for goodness sake of course he should be saved he should be rescued the big difference i suppose at this point between david and jesus is that jesus chose not to call upon god who he could have and had legions of angels he chose not to do that he hung there knowing that he was actually paying the price for your sin and for mine though god would have saved him for he is the christ But of course, Jesus did and also will experience absolutely the strengthening or the vindication from God. Uh, We've already had a foretaste of it. What a foretaste of deliverance in the resurrection that God raised him from the dead. And of course, we will see it finally when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that means already there's a really helpful little implication for us. Living rightly under Jesus is always worth it because he will be vindicated. Now, I've also got to say, living rightly under Jesus can be profoundly difficult. It's very normal for followers of Jesus, if you've lived more than five minutes, to work out that continuing to live for him can be really tough. There's always always a good chance that in a room this size, there's some people for whom living for Jesus is especially hard right now. But the Lord has and will vindicate him. And as Jesus will be vindicated, so too those for whom living in obedience to him at the moment seems a great challenge. Well, I'll also come to a point where they'll fall down in thankfulness that they persevered in obedience to Christ. There will be those on the last day who 
kept fighting to overcome addiction, drugs, alcohol, pornography. They will fall down in great thanks when God's son is vindicated. There will be those who fought hard to open their hand and to let go of the trappings of this world and its materialistic, hedonistic pursuits. They will fall down in tremendous thanks that Jesus has been vindicated because they let go of those things. We have had to overcome envy of our neighbours, having more because of what we give up financially and time-wise for the sake of the gospel. We will fall down in thankfulness when Jesus is vindicated. On that day of Jesus' final vindication, all of us who overcame, in other words, all of us who have our faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour will be able to echo David's words. In verse 25 of this great psalm, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness, note, in his sight. It's not, well, it's my righteousness, but it's given to me, the cleanness in his sight. The first big uh, lesson from this great epilogue on the reign of King David is this, that God's Messiah will be saved and will be vindicated, hence it's always right to side with him rather than against him. Second lesson we learn when we look at the big picture of the life of David is that loyal followers become like him. They become like God's anointed who finds salvation and vindication. Uh, at both sides of this part of the chiasm, we hear about David's mighty men, uh, who they were and, and what amazing thing they accomplished. It reads a little bit like an honour roll. You know, you walk into a school office and they've got a roll of the captains or whatever, like the people that did great stuff. Yeah, you can see that. David's mighty men in this second part. Uh, the first account of his mighty men, it's in chapter 21, and at the beginning, David, he's getting a bit older, and he nearly dies in battle. He gets so exhausted that he, he almost dies. And now that his fighting days are over, his men say, no, nah, you're not going to come with us, mate. We're going to fight on your behalf. And his men, when they start doing what David did, first of all, they do more of it, because there's more of them, and they kind of look really similar. Just listen as I read an example. This is uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 19. Uh, in another battle with the Philistines at Gob, uh, Elhanan, son of, uh, son of Jerith the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite. Killed the brother of a guy who we're going to name, Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Oh, familiar. In still another battle which took place at Gath, Oh, that's where Goliath was from. There was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. Awesome. He also was descended from Rapha, place where there's reputed to be giants. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. It sounds so kind of similar to like what David was doing, right? It's true. People overcoming super strong foes just like David once did with Goliath. They're his mighty men. Now, sorry for the gruesome details, but it's easy for us to remember in our very civilised 21st century world that killing a man using a sword or spear is actually really, really hard, right? Um, I've learnt this, I'm pleased to say learnt, not experienced, uh, from, from learning and books, not from doing uh, apparently a lot of sharp things that you use to kill people first you've got to you've got to navigate like you know defending and fending and whatever there's this shield and so on sticking stuff into people means they often get stuck in bones and it's actually really hard to pull things out again right uh, to be one of David's mighty men 
meant that you had to just, you know, be so driven and, and, and so sort of like emotionally committed to do this horrific task and to do it over and over again. It's not easy. That's why they're on the, 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 the honour roll. There's an example that, that I find really telling and cutting here. A, a guy named Eliezer, who's in David's honour roll, in 23 verse 9 it says, as one of the three mighty warriors, so that is his close lot, uh, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. In other words, the muscle stiffness got so bad he couldn't let go anymore. Oh, man. Uh, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. We're told this, I think, to see that in the process of his mighty men following him, they become more like him, but they do it when it's, you know, requires clout and it's difficult. And I think that the reason this is told for us here, because it is actually written for the church, is that in the process of becoming more like our King Jesus, we battle, thankfully not against flesh and blood, uh, but against, to summarise it, the world, uh, the sinful nature and the devil. The New Testament writers, especially Paul in Ephesians 6, are happy to use that ancient physical gruesome nature of warfare as a metaphor for what we do spiritually. And so I assume that growing in godliness becoming more like our king is supposed to be hard that's what i assume it's not a cakewalk right every now and then you hear someone claim that christians only exist because we need an emotional crutch it's getting a bit of a dated claim now although i've been watching a bit of the uh, renowned atheist christopher hitchens on youtube this week and uh, that's the kind of thing he'll push in his slander of those who would know jesus lord and savior you need an emotional crust i think people who say that have no idea what it means to follow jesus following jesus and being sanctified growing in the grace and the knowledge that's not for wimps it's hard you got to battle you got to fight your own sinful desires for a start the own enticements of the world much easier to give it up much harder Christianity is not for wimps. In Revelation 21, the first people that get thrown into the lake of burning sulfur are, are the cowardly. It actually takes guts to follow Jesus and to grow in his likeness. You've got to make brutal, hard decisions. Loyal followers of Jesus become like him, and that's profoundly difficult. However, I should also mention that it's also extremely rewarding. Uh, and it will be rewarding, as I said, because God's Messiah will be vindicated. But this epilogue, this theological reflection on the rise, fall and reinstatement of David deliberately leaves us dissatisfied and disappointed at the end. For all the amazing success of David and all those who served him, for all God's great work in giving rescue and vindication for his anointed king, the sad note that starts and ends the epilogue, the note that ends the whole book of Samuel, is that no matter how willing David may have been, he simply was never able to manage the righteous and holy wrath of God. Uh, the first part that some of you might have looked at in growth group this week is especially painful and tragic. Uh, but I'm going to look at the last part. Here's a quick summary of the very last uh, section of the epilogue about the life of David. Uh, it records an incident, we not know when, they don't know when, but it's an incident where as a punishment against Israel for their, I assume, many moral, moral failings at some point, God allows David to pursue a sinful desire 
The, the word is he incites him. He doesn't command him, but he incites him. And I think that theologically means he lets David you know, run wild with a, a sinful desire. What's the sinful desire? Well, it sounds strange. It's to take a census of all his military men. And so you might rightly ask, well, what's wrong with that? Why is that dodgy? Well, we're not told, but it could be on account of pride. Uh, David's like, how awesome is my sweet army? Which would be bad because it's actually God's army. Could it be on account of more military plans for expansion? Hey man, my kingdom's sweet, check out all my bling, I want more of this. It could be not trusting in the promises of God. Isn't it the case that Israel is supposed to be more numerous than the sand on the seashore? So God, how are you going with that? Right? Now, no matter what the, the reason is, it's dodgy. David, after he does take the census, is conscience-stricken, works out that he's been a fool, and asks God what's going to happen. And God lets David choose one of three punishments, all of which will be disastrous for Israel. Uh, the first one's a three-year-long punishment, the next one's a three-month, and then the, the, the last one's a three-day. Uh, but it, it sort of sounds like the three-day will be more severe than the other two, etc. David cannot choose. He, he, he says, but I, I'm going to throw myself on God and his mercy. And so God chooses, and he chooses the, the smallest one, the three days of plague, but even then he ends it early. Plague does start killing people within Israel, but he doesn't go for the three days. And God uh, actually, in a sense, vindicates David's plea to show that he is merciful, though just. Now, throughout the event, it's clear that David wishes he could somehow, of his own strength or effort, wishes that he could manage this problem. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, verse 17, When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned, I the shepherd have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Now, it's not actually true. We're told in the first part of uh, uh, the, the last chapter that Israel had sinned. But David so desperately wants to I, I guess, absorb the, the, the righteous wrath of God for the benefit of his people. But, of course, God does not give him that option because, as David admitted, he himself also is a sinner. But even then, he still wants to bear the cost in some way. The angel striking down the people stops just outside Jerusalem at the house of a guy named Arona. And David says to Arona, mate, let me buy all your property so I can set up an altar and make offerings to the Lord. And Aaron says, mate, you can have it for free. You're my king. But David then responds, and I'll put the words on the screen in here, the, right near the end. No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. That is until you read a few more chapters into the next book of uh, Kings. So, David really can, can rely on the salvation and the vindication of the Lord. He can rely on the forgiveness 
of the Lord. His mighty men do mighty deeds like he did, but at the very end of the book, he can't manage the holy and righteous wrath of a perfect God against sinful people, even though he really wants to. And so the question that I pose at the beginning, I ask again, does David, king of Israel, live and endure? Ultimately, no. But on his better days, he did foreshadow the king that God would place over not just Israel, but also Australia, and that means you, and every other nation in the world. Jesus is the king who knows both God's salvation and vindication. Jesus' followers are those who will become like him. And unlike David, Jesus was worthy to give his own life in order to, uh, to turn aside God's righteous wrath against sinners like us like all of what God has orchestrated in the Old Testament that's been recorded for us this book of 2 Samuel makes us wise for salvation in Christ and David is a particularly fitting template if I can put it like that for who Jesus is and what he has done we're actually learning about our Lord and Savior as we've been learning from the book of 2 Samuel three quick implications it may, of course, be the case that there's someone here who is yet to turn to the king who saves. And you wouldn't know this from David. This is one of the great inadequacies that comes into Samuel that's resolved in the personal work of Jesus. God, who saves his anointed, happens to also be the king. Jesus is the God who saves. Uh, and he's the only one who saves if jesus is not yet your king then you are not saved and when jesus is vindicated you will not be it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living god for goodness sake turn repent put your faith in jesus do as i did when i was 19 years old and i worked out that i'd been living my own life my own way and that was stupid you've got to swallow that terrible pride and you've got to go yeah it's just true I mean, for thousands of years, you can see that God's orchestrated this from start to finish. You can't deny that Jesus is the king that God has chosen to be in charge of all people. So much easier when you... You know the best thing about um, hitting your head against a brick wall over and over? Of how good it feels when you finally stop, right? That's what it's like when you constantly reject the lordship of Christ. Turn, have life to the full. Have life in his name. Enjoy... Uh, the, the wonderful fact that you will be vindicated. Have something to live for, even though it's going to be costly and difficult, like thrusting spears into bones and pulling them out again. That's the Christian life. Secondly, for those, and I take it that's the majority of us, who do know Jesus as our Lord and Christ, well, like David's mighty men, it's actually not a bad idea to want to be on that honour roll. And no, that's not pride. Jesus tells you he wants us to outdo one another on in showing honour. It's one of Paul's letters. And that means we need to continually trust him, even in the heat of the battle. I uh, can't stand it when people misuse the life of David to insert us into the text as David all the time. It's a classic problem with people who don't know biblical theology. Oh, what of this big Goliath in your life and the problem you need to come if you've just got enough faith in God, you can sling that thing and you can get a rubbish. But you do become like him. There is, in a very qualified sense, a rightness to us imitating 
the Lord's anointed. And that means trusting God, which he did, even at the most horrendously difficult part of his life, where, where it would have been almost impossible to trust him, namely his crucifixion. If you're in the heat of battle at the moment, brothers and sisters, if life is extraordinarily difficult for you and you wonder where God's hand is in whatever's befalling you currently, even then you are right and you will be shown right to hold fast to him, to trust him and to imitate him by trusting God in the heat of that battle. Finally, all of us will fall and will fail. And David perhaps had some of the most spectacular fails uh, that we know about, right? When that happens, it makes sense that we speak to the manager. This is the one application where I'm telling you ought to be Karen's. Um, Jesus is the one, the only one, who can manage the righteous wrath of the holy God. It is always right that when we fail to live as we ought, that we speak not to a priest, but to him. Thank you, God, that you sent Jesus to die for all my sins, past, present and future. I acknowledge my sin before you and I know that you are faithful and just and will forgive all unrighteousness for the sake of your son. That is how merciful you are, God. Never tire, brothers and sisters, of speaking to the manager for many reasons, but especially for the reason that you do something spectacularly dumb or stupid or sinful like David did. To that end, let me now pray on my behalf and the behalf of everyone else here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word makes us wise for salvation in Christ, that we see in this theological reflection on the life of King David uh, that we uh, become like our Lord and Saviour Jesus that we can call on the king, the only king who can rightly manage uh, your righteous anger against our sin. And for all of us, Father, we are, have all in many ways, including this week, fallen short. Uh, we thank you that we find forgiveness in and only in the personal work of the Lord Jesus, who was so trusting of you that he allowed himself to forego the salvation he deserved in order to give us the salvation we don't deserve. And we uh, pray these things in thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.